in Ephesians 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 16 again, but you know in the message we're going to concentrate in on verses 11 through 16 this time. <laughs> Ephesians 4, starting at verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you were called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore, he said, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is also the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that henceforth we be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up to him in all things which is the head, even Christ." from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, makes increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are thankful to be here in your house. Lord, we do ask that you would Speak to us through your word that you would just open our hearts and minds to the uh, spirit-inspired meaning of the text and that we would apply it in a way that would make a difference in how we serve you. Ask, Lord, that you would please give me the physical strength and the uh, spiritual insight to be able to proclaim the message of your word, to just take the burden of it and lay it down before your people. Forgive me of my failures. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Y'all know we lived over at the Dean's house for many years. When we moved there in April of 2011, Kanija was five, Cora was three, and Maya had just turned one. As many parents do, we made the habit of measuring their growth. We specifically used the doorway that was at the bottom of the basement steps. We'd line them up with their back against the wall. We'd make a mark where it showed how tall they were. They would get identified with their name and, and the date that it was put there so they could compare how they'd grown. 
By the way, when the church sold that house, and really wanted to go rip that piece of drywall out and keep it. One time after measuring, about two days went by, and Cora wanted to check to see how much taller she was. She was unhappy that her older sister seemed to always be up there somewhere. So Joy and I had to explain, look, growth happens, but it happens slowly, right? And how does growth for a child happen? Well, you have to eat your fruits and vegetables. Parents don't do their kids any favors if the only meal they ever get is chicken nuggets and mac and cheese, right? Sometimes there is important food for growth, and it might be hard for you to swallow, but it needs to be there. You have to get some exercise. That's pretty easy by just letting kids do what kids do, right? We got them a, a, a nice place that, you know, had a slide, a couple of swings, a little fort, a, a table. It turns out putting it together was some good exercise for dad. But if you intake nutritious food and you get healthy exercise, you will grow. You'll move up that chart, right? You will make progress. As the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, he is describing a process that is very similar. The church's spiritual food is the word of God. And so in his wisdom, Christ has given gifts to members of the church but specifically, verse 11 mentions apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers. Those are the ones who bring the word, the spiritual food necessary for, verse 12, the perfecting, maturing of the saints and the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ. Even if it's sometimes what's good for us is hard for us to swallow, it's the word there to nourish us. The church's exercise, he describes, is the use, to, use of the gifts that Christ has given. So, for example, in verse 12, the mature saints, they do the work of the ministry. Verse 16 describes every member exercising their gifts, right? The effective working in the measure of every part. And ultimately, just like a child who gets good nourishment and healthy exercise... The end goal is that the child grows up. That imagery fills this text in verse 14. He says that from now on, we would not be children being tossed to and fro. In verse 15, he says that we may grow up into him in all things. In verse 13, I think he's got the very picture of that measuring wall we were talking about. He says, growing up unto the perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, right? There is a goal up there that we're growing to, and it is not some sibling in your family. It is our perfect older brother, Jesus. We are slowly growing to become more like him. This is what Paul is telling us in this text. Christ's gifts that he's given, and we looked this morning, right? Jesus has come down, he has won the victory for us, he has taken possession and ownership, all the spoils of victory are his, and yet he has, in his kindness and wisdom, given us gifts. And Paul says all of the gifts of Christ are designed for and necessary for our growth. Look at verse 7. 
Right? He gives gifts. He, he does so wisely. He gives gifts as he sees fit. Paul says in verse 7, But every, unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Now when you read that word grace in verse 7, I don't want you to think of it as only saving grace, although that is clearly a gift. Paul's talked about that back in chapter 2. This grace in verse 7 is not grace to save, it is grace to serve. Paul is going to be very clear as he describes the gifts that the Lord's given, that each of those gifts are intended to be used. They are to be used to serve him. And each of those gifts is another demonstration of his grace. Grace is undeserved, undeserved favor. We don't even deserve the ability to be able to serve the Lord. But in that the Lord has gracefully given us that ability, we are required to use what it is that he's given us. Incidentally, the Apostle Peter says this very same thing in his letters. Every believer has a gift from Christ. Every believer must use their gift. Every gift is a sign of God's grace. Listen to 1 Peter 4 verse 10. He says, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. There's a couple of important implications to this. First off, gifts are gifts. Deep, right? They're gifts. They're not a source of pride. Nobody should ever say, look how gifted I am. There is nothing you've done to deserve that gift or to earn that gift, nor do you exercise it under your own power. It is all a sign of the grace of Jesus Christ given to you. Gifts do not earn praise for the one receiving the gifts. Gifts earn praise for the giver. Also, gifts are given in verse 7. To every one of us, everyone who the Lord Jesus Christ has saved by grace, he has gifted grace to serve him. Nobody is without giftedness. The victorious Lord Jesus did not miss you when he gave out gifts. The New Testament has Three different places where it lists some spiritual gifts. You'll find it in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and then also here in our text. But none of those lists are comprehensive of all gifts. If you go to the lists and you add them all up, you will come up with a list of, you know, about 20 of them. Things like serving and leadership and mercy and discernment. But I'm certain there are more than 20 gifts that the Lord gives his people. Each writer uses, each time this is written, it's used in order to make the point that is pertinent in the context, right? None of them is, I'm going to list all the gifts. It's, I'm going to list the gifts that make my point. And so, for example, in Ephesians 4, he's about to talk about the necessity of the word of God for church growth. And so he lists the teaching gifts that deliver the word of God. None of them are comprehensive lists. Just because you don't have one of the gifts listed 
in verse 11, or you have a hard time identifying gifts from one of the other lists, doesn't mean that you are without. Paul says clearly, every one of us is gifted by the Lord Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to go back and listen to the series on spiritual gifts from a few years ago. They're available on Sermon Audio or on the church's website. Those passages about spiritual gifts are always in this same context, right? The unity of the body of Christ, the whole church, and the necessity for every part to work as Christ has gifted it. For example, listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14 through 21. He says, For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, Because I am not the hand, I'm not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, Because I'm not an eye, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body was an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole was hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Do all members have a gift? Yes. Are all the gifts the same? No. And thank the Lord for that. Does anyone have a right to compare their gifts to others and conclude, well, you know, I guess I'm just not that important. I see what they do over there. No. Paul says the foot can't say, you know, because I'm not their hand, I guess I'm not of the body. Conversely, can anyone look at another person's gift and conclude, you're not needed? No, the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the foot, I don't need you. What would be the wisdom in that? If these are gifts that Christ has given in his kindness and gifts that the Spirit has empowered in his wisdom, Do you know better than Christ? Are you wiser than the Holy Spirit? Every gift given to every member of the church is vital to the function of the church. Now, because Paul is about to delve into that metaphor of growing up, right, he's only going to list four gifts in verse 11. I know it looks like five, but there's really only four. And he lists those because each of those is a gift designed to provide the word, the the spiritual food, the nourishment that's needed for the Lord's churches. He says in verse 11, and he that is Christ gave some apostles, some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Note how he uses that word some to identify each one of those, right? There's, There's these four categories, some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastor teachers. In the history of the Lord's churches, you will find that's the very case. First, there were the apostles who did much of their greatest work in spreading the gospel and starting churches. With those apostles, there came men with the extraordinary gift of prophecy, both foretelling and foretelling. 
right? That is, sometimes a prophet foretold, predicted the future. Other times, a prophet more often foretold, that is, declared God's word to God's people. Evangelists primarily are those who preach the gospel. I think a good description of evangelistic work can be seen in the life of the Apostle Paul. He traveled from one place to another, preaching the gospel, seeing people saved, starting churches, then moving to another area. And then finally, the pastor-teacher. Pastor is the shepherd of the sheep. It's a pastor's job to protect the sheep, to mind their wounds, to, to lead them in safety. In Christian service, that man is expected to teach, right? To, to help the sheep learn. The pastor teacher is the equivalent to the terms bishop or elder other places in the New Testament. Now, do all four of these groups still exist today? Well, the only one that we can say with assurance does not exist today is apostle. The choice of an apostle to replace Judas in the book of Acts required that to be an apostle, you had to be baptized by John the Baptist and with Jesus throughout his whole ministry. There aren't any of those today. Do prophets still exist? Well, in the sense of foretelling future events, I don't think so. In the sense of expounding the word of God, forth-telling God's truth to God's people, I certainly hope so. They aren't prophets like the Old Testament prophets, but they are certainly men who proclaim God's word with authority. Evangelists, well, the very best missionaries today are evangelists. They travel from place to place. They preach the gospel. They baptize those who believe. They form them in the churches and then move on to do that again. That's being an evangelist. And pastors and teachers still exist. Like, I don't know of anybody who argues pastor-teacher is, is a gift that has gone away. But just some Jasonology here. I tend to think that some of the, the you, you think of the group of men who we label their preachers, you'll see each of them leans toward one of those last three descriptions, right? There are some who are gifted in declaring God's word to God's people with authority. There are others who are gifted in making a declaration of the gospel clearly. Then you have some preachers who are exceptional at giving pastoral guidance, right? Teaching practical lessons from the word, at least what I've experienced, what I've seen. What we should clearly see is the existence and use of these gifts is according to the wise gifting of the Lord Jesus. So, just a word of how this applies practically to our church. I have told you that I will continue to point out when multiple elders shows up in the text. And this is one of those times. It's not the responsibility of this church to decide whether or not we should have multiple elders, multiple pastor teachers. That's not our job to decide. It has nothing to do with how we think it would work practically. It has nothing to do with, you know, what the church has traditionally done. It has nothing to do with how we would feel about it on some emotional level. The only thing that matters is that the victorious 
Lord Jesus, in his wisdom, has he placed gifted men within the assembly? The Apostle Paul is very clear here. If the Lord Jesus has placed those gifts within the church, those gifts are meant to be used by the church. They are necessary. We can't tell Jesus he's wrong. If the Holy Spirit gifted and empowered them, we can't tell the Holy Spirit he made a mistake. Ultimately, what is that doing except the very thing that God's word says we should not do. We have no business doing. Looking at some gift within the church placed there by Christ's wisdom and saying, we don't need you. Yes, we do. We do need that. And here's why. Look at Paul's description to see what pastor teacher does. In verse, we'll pick up at verse 11 again. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastor teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, in fairness, there is some difference of opinion over the correct way to look at verse 12. You'll see there are three things described in verse 12, right? The perfecting of the saints, the work of the ministry, the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ. And some folks would like to say that all those men described in verse 11 are responsible for all of those actions in verse 12, right? They have to perfect the saints. They have to do the work of the ministry. They have to build up the body of Christ. But that is absolutely not what Paul is saying. The context of the passage, remember, is Paul's appeal for all members at Ephesus to, up in verse 1, walk worthy, you all walk worthy of the vocation to which you all were called. You see, in verse 10, he commands them to be meek and forbear one another in love. He is talking to the church members at Ephesus, not to the church leaders at Ephesus. Not just to them, anyway. In fact, there's this little word at the beginning of verse 7 that's just super instructive to the whole text, right? It's the word but. So follow here. In verses 1 through 6, Paul is talking about the unity of the church, right? All the members, by what we all have in common, we have one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father. Every church member has all of that in common, verse 7. But... By contrast, there are things that members do not have in common. There are many different gifts. The Lord Jesus gives gifts that are distinct, placing them wisely in the assembly. So that that distinct church members can all work together toward the common goal. Look at verse 16. It requires the effective working in every part to make increase of the body, building up itself, edifying itself in love. The effective working in every part is what brings edification. It's what builds and causes growth. And so in verse 12, he, when he says the work of the ministry, that is every believer doing the ministry. Service is what the word ministry means. It's needed in, in the assembly to edify the body of Christ. So what Paul is doing in verse 12 is a kind of flow chart for church growth. Right? 
The Christ-given gifts of verse 11 are for a purpose. The purpose is to perfect the saints. That word means to furnish or to equip, right? The teaching gifts, teaching the word of God is there to perfect. It's to equip the saints. Those perfected and equipped saints are for a purpose. They are for the work of the ministry, right? They're to do works of service. And that work of the ministry is for a purpose. That is what edifies. It's what builds up the body of Christ. One leads to the next, which leads to the next on down the line. But this represents a challenge for myself and for Andrew and those men who would be elders. This is not a celebrity status. It's a call to work. Pastor teachers are given by Christ himself for the purpose of equipping the saints to serve. Pastors are to preach the gospel of salvation. They're they're to preach the authority of God's word. They're to protect and, and to guide the people through his word. Ultimately, it's the word of God made effective in the life of a Christian that leads them to development, that causes them to grow. So this is how a church grows up. And let me just say, just because a church can trace its history back 70, 80, 100 years, that doesn't mean that it doesn't have a lot of growing up to do. We need to be equipped. We need to be involved. The goal is the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ. And only when church members are equipped and involved will we start to grow up. There is some wonderful imagery employed in this passage. It gives us the very picture of a, a young person growing up. Look, start at verse 13. Till we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto the perfect man and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that henceforth we be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cutting craftiness, whereby they lie and wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. When Paul says in verse 13 that we're to grow to the perfect man, he's not talking about you're going to reach some state of sinless perfection, the idea of the word perfect there is mature, right? Fully equipped. You are a mature Christian. And he says that by that, you will come close to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The idea is that a person reaches that height where they are considered an adult, right? We have to grow up in him in all things, he says in verse 15. So what's the evidence that we've reached that? What is the evidence that we have grown up? Well, there's no place at the doorpost of the church that we get to pencil in everybody's height on Sunday morning and congratulate someone and say, look, you've, you've made it. No, the measurement of spiritual maturity are spiritual standards. First, there is a unity of the faith in verse 13. Paul does not mean there that, well, that means we all have faith in Jesus, although that would be true. You can't be mature physically until you're born. You can't be mature spiritually until you're born again. 
What he means by the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God is that we have the same doctrinal beliefs. We are centered on the truths of God's word because we have been equipped because the teaching gifts have done their job. We know more about Jesus as the word of God reveals him. We become more like Jesus in that process. We get ever closer to that measure of his stature. Secondly, maturity gives you stability in your Christian walk. Y'all ever watched a toddler walk, right? They, they waddle from place to place. They're sort of unsure of their footing. It's really cute. Now would you picture some horrible person who just finds it amusing. I mean, it is their absolute pleasure in life to stick their foot out and trip a toddler, to push them over onto the ground while they're walking. That'd be a horrible person. That'd be evil. But it is a risk for Christians. The goal is that Paul says we wouldn't be no more children tossed to and fro in verse 14 because there are people who, spiritually speaking, do that exact thing I've described. They bring about, in verse 14, winds of false doctrine. They're cunning and crafty. They lie in wait, plotting to deceive the immature. That's why we need to be equipped with the word. I just want to say to the young people this morning in particular, the spiritual maturity is not something that just comes naturally with age. Spiritual maturity comes from learning the word of God and submitting to the will of God. If you do this, if you learn the word and you set the course of your life according to Christ's commands, then you will have spiritual maturity that surpasses the actual age of those people around you. And you older folks, don't assume that the number of your age sets some measure of the maturity of your spiritual life. You are only a grown-up Christian if you are still learning, still growing, still serving. I mean, set an example for the young people in our church. They crave that. They, they need that. They can either grow in Christ because of your help, or they can grow in Christ in spite of the example you set. They are vital and necessary members of the assembly. And if you will not set an example to lead them, my prayer is soon they'll be setting an example that you will be led by them. Growing up in Christ, verse 15, growing up into him in all things is not only about learning. You do need to continue learning. You also need to continue serving. You need to continue growing into him in all things, every facet of life. That is a necessity for spiritual growth. We noted earlier, spiritual growth comes because of good nourishment and healthy exercise. Back in verse 12, we said that every church member is to do the work of the ministry, right? The works of service. What is your work of the ministry? The idea of ministry here isn't like, oh, that's the things that ministers do. The idea here is that it is service. What is the service that you are called to do in the assembly? Right? You do have a calling. Paul said so up in verse 1. 
You do have a gift. Paul said that in verse 7. So what is the gift that you've been given by Christ so that you can serve Christ? How has the victorious Lord Jesus gifted you? And are you using that gift or those gifts for his glory? And if you're not, Paul's not shy about saying the consequence of that is that it's going to have an effect on the health of the church as a whole. Someone's compared serving in the church to a football game where there's 22 people running around on the field desperately in need of a break and there's thousands of people watching desperately in need of exercise. And if that seems like an unfair analogy, then maybe each of us should ask ourselves, what kind of church would this be if every member was putting in the exact same of effort as I am? Would all the other church members be better off for following my example? I'm certain people have thought, oh, well, you know, if the church was healthier and if it was more active, then I'd probably get more involved. It doesn't work that way. How healthy and active would your body be if it was dragging around a limb that wouldn't move? Just showing up is not your spiritual gift. Although, if you are not showing up, that is a good place to start. But if you are a member of the church and you're not serving the Lord Jesus as he has gifted you, as he intends you to serve, then you are in fact hampering the health of the church as a whole. Every member, every body part of the body of Christ, Paul says, is essential to its health. It's necessary for its growth. Look at verse 16. From whom the whole body, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies, according to the effective working in the measure of every part, makes increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. And again, what Paul's saying in verse 16, I want you to note how he's bringing a phrase back into the text that he has used before. Up in verse 7, every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ, right? This is Christ gifting us. As every church member has been enabled to serve, we've been given a gift by Christ as he sees fit to give. And we trust that he's the wise giver, right? He knows what he's doing. And now Paul brings back that phrase, the measure of the gift of Christ, into the text and says in verse 16, the church as a whole only functions and grows by the effective working in the measure of every part. That is, Christ has measured us out a gift to each of us, and the work of each of us is required in using those gifts that have been measured out in order for the church to function correctly. He's using that analogy, analogy of a church as a body again. The whole body, the whole church fits together according to the design of Christ, right? He saved each member. He's gifted each member. He places each member in the church. He's the wise gift giver, the perfect designer of the church body. Every member he's brought to life, every gift that he's given is vital. They work together. They're made to fit together, Paul says. 
like bones and ligaments and joints of a body. We cannot operate apart from one another. The church cannot function right without you. That doesn't mean, hey, if it's a gift, that means it's going to be easy. It's not. In verses 12 and 16, Paul uses the word work. That sort of implies this isn't necessarily going to be easy. Using your gifts won't be easy. I certainly haven't felt like using my gift has been easy this morning. But this is the design for all of us. We love Christ our Savior. We trust Christ to be the wise gift giver. We submit to Christ as the head of the church. He knows what he's doing. You will never be more satisfied than when you live in the certainty that you are serving the Lord Jesus who saved you. It can be hard work, but it is worthwhile work. It's the only worthwhile work. No other work you do in this life is going to have the eternal significance except serving Jesus. This church, if you love it, serve in it. If you want the church to be edified, if you want it to be built up, then be involved in what it does. Do you want the church to grow? While I do think this passage has some things to say about the numerical growth of the church, primarily it's about the growth of the church to know Christ more, to serve Christ better, to love as Christ loves. It's the edifying, verse 12, the body of Christ, and hoping, in verse 16, for the increasing of the body to the edifying of itself in love. If there's some hope that you have for the church to grow numerically or spiritually, it's not going to happen unless all the members do the service that Christ has set before us. Until you do the service that Christ has set before you. And ultimately, this isn't about you or even about us. It's about the victorious Lord Jesus who has redeemed us and given us these gifts for his glory. The church is the institution designed for God's glory, right? That's the end of Ephesians 3, which led into all of this, right? To God be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. This church is the body of Christ. What does he look like to the world around us? Are we showing the world a lethargic, apathetic, aloof Christ? Y'all, it is, it is my privilege, it is my pleasure to serve the Lord in this church with you. I love all of you, but I also don't know how much more clearly the Apostle Paul through the text could say, isn't it just time that we grew up already? Through love for Christ, through the nourishment of his word, through the healthy exercising of our gifts, he has called us, he has gifted us, he expects this of us. If you want to be satisfied, serve the Lord. If you want the church to be edified, serve the Lord. If you want God to be glorified, serve the Lord. You've been given a gift and you've been given a calling. We have to get to using.